The message today is a question, and the question is this. Are we foolish to believe in the resurrection? Modern man today rejects the physical, visible, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we foolish to still believe in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior? In the book of Luke, chapter number 24, if you would turn there with me, I'll read the text passage today. And then if you find it quickly, you might want to go on and flip over to John chapter 20, and we'll finish the reading there as well. Luke 24, John chapter 20. Stand with me as we read God's Word today together, please. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, They came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared from three days before, of course, and certain others with them. They found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee? And the angel reminds them that Christ had been telling them that he was going to die and resurrect. Verse 7. He said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And then they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things to the apostles. Their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. And then arose Peter, and he ran to the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Now, if you would go to John chapter 20, each of the four gospels has the account of the resurrection And I could read from all of them if I had time, but we don't. So we'll go to John 20, and there's a few details here he gives us that uh, Luke didn't mention. John chapter 20, verse 3. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, and that's John. That's the way he refers to himself since he's the author here. They came to the sepulcher. They both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter. He was probably 20 years younger than Peter. And he, he came first to the sepulcher. And he's stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher, and he sees the linen clothes lying there. And the napkin, the details, notice the details, the napkin that was about Christ's head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, John referring to himself. And he saw 
and he believed. For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Thank you, and you may be seated. We must not forget as we think about the resurrection accounts that the Old Testament had prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah many times over. You found it in Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Hosea chapter 6. You find it in Zechariah chapter 12. You can go through the Old Testament. There's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of a coming Messiah who will die and then will come back to life. And Christ himself had told them repeatedly during his ministry years. Jesus told them that he would die, he would be resurrected after his burial. There is at least eight accounts in the Gospels of Christ telling them what was going to happen. Interestingly, nobody ever seemed to remember it. He told them eight times, and yet the Bible says here that they were not aware that he was even going to resurrect. And so we compare these scriptural accounts, and when we do, we find out in the Matthew account, which we did not read, that the day began with, a, with an earthquake. The ground shook there at the temple site or at the resurrection site. And then an angel came and rolled the stone away. This is very important. Don't miss it to understand what's happening in the resurrection. The moving of the stone was not to let Jesus Christ out. He didn't need any help to get out. The purpose was not to let Christ out. The purpose was to let the witnesses in so that people could see that Jesus Christ, who had been dead and buried for three days, was now literally alive. And so it's Sunday morning. And Mary Magdalene and several women, their names we read, arrived to finish the burial process, which they had had to cut short on Friday after his death because of the coming of the Sabbath day. The stone had already been moved when Mary and the women got there. And so Mary apparently leaves and leaves the other women at the site, but she runs to get Peter and John and the other of the disciples to tell them that the Lord's body is missing. Peter and John run, John running faster than Peter. He gets to the site. Apparently, he looks in but doesn't enter the tomb, and he waits on Peter. Peter comes, more impetuous. You're not shocked if you know about Peter. And he goes on in the tomb, and he begins to examine the clothes. I've preached to you on how the body was prepared. Approximately 100 feet of linen wrapped and wrapped and round the body. About 100 pounds of ointments of various types of spices placed on a Jewish body for burial. Peter observes that. The clothes are empty. In fact, they're still wrapped like a cocoon. They're not torn apart. Whatever was there just moved out, vacated, if you will. The body is gone. And so they rush back to John's house. You wonder why they go to John's house. If you compare 
John 19, 27 and John 20 and 10, you find out that after Jesus died, you remember on the cross, Jesus said to John, take my mother and care for her. And so the Bible says that John had taken Jesus' mother, Mary, home. And he was caring for her. And so I can assume then that probably the reason that they ran immediately back to John's house was to tell Jesus' mother, Mary, that her son's body was missing. And then other people began to come. And the women that were there observing, and the news began to spread. And uh, the witnesses compared their experiences. They went out, and gradually the news spread throughout the city of Jerusalem that that preacher, that Nazarene preacher, prophet, Jesus that they crucified on Friday or Thursday, depending on how you interpret it, that his body is missing. How could his body be missing? The tomb was sealed. There were Roman guards standing by. Nobody could overcome Roman guards. But he's gone. The grave clothes are there. The napkins neatly folded. They covered up his face and his head. But his body is nowhere to be found. His first appearance was to Mary Magdalene when she had returned and he stood there behind her and spoke briefly to her. Then later that day, he joins two of his disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus. He joins them and actually goes to their home with them and eats bread with them. Then later that same evening, that night, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to the 10 apostles that are gathered in what was called the upper room. Thomas is missing because of his unbelief. And this is a brief account of the first day's activities here on Easter, the very first day. Christ made at least three appearances that day. Now, the question before us again is, are we foolish to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we foolish to believe that the founder of our religion, our faith, alone of all the people who have ever lived, died, was buried for three days, and came to life again? We're modern people. We understand technology. We send people to the hospital. We send people, unfortunately, to the undertaker. In all the annals of history, nobody's ever come back. So why would we think that this one exception occurs? Well, that means that number one today, if you're taking notes, the the importance of the resurrection absolutely cannot be overstated. The importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be overstated. You see, death is our greatest enemy. It's universal, as I've been saying. It triumphs over all people and over all things. People die. Animals die. Plants die. Whole species of living beings become extinct. Cities and nations die. Our homes gradually fade away and are destroyed. Our automobiles rust away. Our clothes wear out. Everything 
It's either dust to dust or it's rust to dust. But either way, everything has its day and it passes away. Now, the Bible even has a name for this. The Bible calls it the bondage of corruption. And if you want to look that up someday, it's Romans 8 and 21. The bondage of corruption. The word corruption there literally is the same word translated decay. The bondage of decay. Meaning bondage, we're entrapped. We cannot get away from it. We're, we're, we're chained to this process, if you will. The bondage of decay. Everything is decaying. Everything is passing away. Everything is dying. Everything has its moment, its day, and it's gone. Everything, everything, everything. I want you to get it. Even the universe itself is running down, so the scientists tell us. And the Bible says the name for this process is the bondage of corruption, the bondage of decay. Everything is decaying. That's scientifically accurate. For those of you today who study science, science calls that the second law of thermodynamics. It's probably the most universally true law and accepted law of almost any law of science. It's also called the law of increasing entropy. And it means that in time, over given enough time, every system becomes disordered. Every system. It gets to where it won't work. Our bodies get old. They won't work. And all the technology and all the money and all the treatment in the whole world, it won't work anymore. It dies. I knew a man. I was on the board of directors of one of his businesses, and that man was a billionaire. He lived in Kentucky, and he gave billion, or millions and millions of money to Christian enterprises. And he was stricken with a form of cancer. And he would go to Louisville once a month, and he would take a shot that cost tens of thousands of dollars. It kept him going for four or five years after he was supposed to be dead. He built a mausoleum behind his horse farm in Kentucky because he knew he was going to die. And he kept taking the shots, and they kept prolonging his life. But one day, guess what? About two weeks ago, they called me. George is dead. All the billion dollars that he was worth did not keep him alive any longer. It it sort of held back the day of death. But nobody can ever hold it back permanently. Every system whether you're a billionaire or a homeless man, every system becomes disordered and we die. Kings and presidents and scientists and prophets and philosophers, not one exception to universal death in all the history of man, except one. And we're here today to celebrate that. That banner gives us his name. Jesus Christ is alive. He died. He was buried. But unlike any other person in all of history, he resurrected his own dead body. He made it immortal. He emerged from that tomb then 
to live for all of eternity. Let me define for you what I mean when I use the word resurrection. Resurrection occurs when the spirit returns to the body from which it had departed and gives it back its life. You see, our physical body depends upon the spirit soul part of it to give it life. That's what energizes the physical material part of our being. Resurrection occurs when the spirit returns to the body from which it departed and gives it back its life. That's only happened one time in history. Resurrection is not resuscitation. We resuscitate people, but they haven't fully died. Resurrection is not reviving somebody who is passed out. Resurrection occurs only when there's already been the finality of death. This is so important. People often think of a resurrection. For example, I I was reading an article where uh, someone was talking about Easter here, and they said every spring there is a resurrection that the The plant life revives, and the grass comes back out, and the trees give their leaves, and it's a resurrection. No, 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 that's not a resurrection. The tree wasn't dead. The grass wasn't dead. It was dormant. There's a difference. Resurrection is death has occurred. The Spirit has left. The Spirit returns, energizes the physical and material part of man, and it's only happened once in the time of the Lord, only happened once permanently, because even those that Christ resurrected died later on, Lazarus and so on. But Jesus Christ is alive, and he lives forevermore. And our Christian faith depends upon whether this is true or whether it's not true. If this is just a myth, if this is just a fable, then you and I are deluded people, and we're foolish to believe in the resurrection But if it it is, in fact, a fact, then we're not foolish. We have the greatest thing that man has ever embraced in our Christian faith. Secondly, number one, the importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. Number two, the resurrection is the very foundation of our faith. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity The resurrection validated what Christ claimed in his life, what he taught, the principles by which he lived, and and that we have today in in our New Testament. The resurrection validated Christ's claims and his promises. We believe today that Jesus Christ is coming again. If he were in a tomb, he's not coming again. The resurrection validated every claim that he made and every every promise that he made to us. So the resurrection is foundational to our faith. Our hope for eternal life, our own immortality, depends exclusively upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there would be no church. Here we are gathered together celebrating his resurrection. We wouldn't be here if there were not definite evidences for the resurrection of our Lord. You remember that after the cross, Christ had died, the disciples were totally confused. 
They didn't know what to believe. They were literally in shock. They were afraid. They'd gone into hiding, thinking that maybe they were going to come and they were going to suffer the same fate as had their Lord. And so confusion and fear reigned in their lives. And then after the resurrection, you remember what happened? Boy, they sure must have believed it because these men went forth boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of the 12 apostles, every single one of them died proclaiming the gospel. Somewhere in the world, they gave their lives. Men don't die for something they half believe. Men don't believe, die for something they have doubts and questions about. Men only die for principles that they know are absolutely valid, absolutely true, that there's integrity in those principles. And that's what these men did. And interestingly, we talk more about the cross than we do the resurrection, but these men who had experienced the res resurrection talk more about it than they did the cross. Turn with me, if you will, just a few pages from the book of John over the book of Acts, and we see the early church begin to function. This is just a few months or so after Christ had died and resurrected. And we go to Acts chapter number 4 and verse number 2, and let's see what the subject to their message of their preaching is. And it's talking about the council here, and it says they were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was the very core of the apostles' preaching after it occurred. Go down to verse number 16, and the apostles are being quoted here. What are uh, the councils being quoted? And the council said, what shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, these are their enemies. This is the council in Jerusalem, the same council that put Jesus Christ to death. And they said, what are we going to do now? We can't deny that a notable miracle has been done in this place, and we can't deny it. Even they had to give credence to the resurrection. Chapter 4 and verse 33. Let's look at another one. And with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. Now, these are just three passages I plucked out of one chapter here so that you would understand the very theme of the apostles' preaching, the heart and core of their preaching was what? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 that I often refer to here. If you come here regularly, you probably know this by heart, and I hope you do. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel. And that what does he say the gospel is? How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, number one. Number two, that he was buried. And number three, 
that he arose again the third day from the grave according to the Scriptures, those Old Testament Scriptures I, I previously referred to. And so Christ died, and he was buried. Listen to me. Christ died, and he was buried is no gospel. That's no good news if Christ died and he was buried. The good news is that Christ died, he was buried, and he is alive today that he resurrected. Without the resurrection, there's no gospel. There's no good news. What was the evidence that convinced that early Christian world so strongly that Christ was alive? The the strongest argument of all, the greatest evidence, is the empty tomb itself. And throughout history, people have done serious, long-term investigations. And in every case, they've had to conclude, we cannot explain this empty tomb. The arguments of the unbelievers fall into two or three or four categories that they use to refute the the resurrection of Christ. Number one, they, they say, well, Christ was not really dead. We call that the swoon theory that Christ was lost so much blood and suffered and was so wounded on the cross, they carried him and put him in the tomb and in the coolness of the tomb and with the rest and so on, he resuscitated. See, that's a resuscitation theory. It's not a resurrection, even if it were true, which it's not. And somehow Christ revived then and survived. Christ was not really dead, they said. Maybe there's somebody here that said that. Oh, I believe he came back, but he was never really fully dead. He wasn't dead, dead, graveyard dead, you know. Well, Pilate believed he was dead. He was given assurance by the centurion that Christ was dead. He took a spear and ran it up into his side and up into his insides. It pierced his his heart cavity, outflowed blood, And water mixed together, medical people tell me that's a sure sign that cavity has been been abridged, has been changed and pierced. How do you explain that a man who lost all that blood was wrapped in a hundred feet of clothing or wrapping linen? that a stone was placed over the entrance of the tomb. It had a seal on it. There was a guard of somewhere between 8 and 15 Roman soldiers there guarding the tomb. How do you explain he walked out of there and nobody ever saw him or nobody could explain his absence? How do you explain that a man in that condition coming down from a crucifixion is completely transformed in three days, wounded, unconscious, blood loss, shock, and in three days he's out traveling over the whole countryside and speaking to people? How would you explain that? No, you can't explain that. That theory fails. And then there's another theory, and that is the disciples stole the body. Somehow they came up with this, uh, this conspiracy and they figured a way to get the body out. And once they got the body out, then 
They swore this pact that they would never tell. The only problem with that theory is, would a conspiracy like that hold? And would people go and die to perpetuate that fraud, that lie? That's not very reasonable. And then there's another one. Boy, they, the, the, the enemies of the resurrection have really gotten creative. There's the wrong tomb theory, that they went to the wrong tomb. And so that they, the tomb was empty there. It hadn't been used yet. Yet, and so they, you know, that they thought that was the tomb of Christ. The only problem with that is, is, is there was only one tomb in that garden, according to the Bible. That was Joseph's tomb. He had created that tomb for himself. And anyhow, if the body had been stolen, why, all the authorities would have ever had to do is find that body and produce it, and it would have ended the Christian faith forever. And then the last one is, is most ridiculous, but it's, it has some followers. The hallucination theory, that the disciples were hallucinating, that they maybe had drank a little too much or were taking some sort of hallucinogenic drug, or they were imagining. But psychologists will all tell you that People may hallucinate, but they don't hallucinate in groups about the same hallucination. <laughs> Imagine everybody leaving here today hallucinating about something that they thought they saw. Well, that's, that's impossible. It's preposterous. And so you can't explain it that way. Everybody in America may be on drugs, but everybody in Jerusalem wasn't back in those days. And so the hallucination theory won't hold much water, will it? Christ, after his resurrection, the Bible gives us 10 times that he appeared in public appearances before people, 10 post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And no doubt he appeared many other places. Those are just the 10 that the Scripture tends to record. And one of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 15 and 6 where it says, after Christ resurrected, there was over 500, 500 eyewitnesses, brethren, that saw him at one time, even at one time. So that's the theories that people have used trying to explain away the resurrection of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Greenleaf was a Jewish man. He was the founder many years ago of the Harvard Law School. There's a law school on the West Coast. It's named after him even today. A great, brilliant, legal mind from the earlier days of our country. And this man studied the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what he said, quote, if the evidence of the resurrection were presented in a court of law, there would, no, there would be no question as to the outcome. If the evidence for the resurrection of Christ were presented in a court of law, there would be no question as to the outcome. That it would be an open and shut case that Jesus Christ is alive. 
You know, there's a lot of unbelief around today, more a growing skepticism about the Bible, so we're told. I know that in my years of ministry to people, I've encountered and dealt with scores and scores of people who said, well, I just don't know if I can believe all that stuff, preacher. And I've reasoned with them. I've taken the Bible and gone through the Scripture. I've given them books on apologetics that I know were the best books that could be written about the subject. And yet, you know what I've found? I've found out that many of them never came around. I understand what you're saying, preacher. I just don't believe it. And then one day I read something that I shared with a brother even here this week. And I think it's a powerful, powerful, logical statement certainly true to my experience. The statement is this, unbelief is not always intellectual. It is a matter often of the will. Unbelief is not always a matter of the intellect. In other words, intellect is not that you don't have the facts. It is that very often people have the facts and they make a moral choice, a moral choice. I've looked at the evidence. I've heard the facts, but I choose to not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A choice, a matter of the will. Unbelief is not always intellectual. It is often a matter of the will. I choose whether to believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot explain the change in the apostles. One of the most powerful evidences of the living Christ is the change in these apostles. These men, terrified, had watched this terribly violent episode here, the cross of Christ had seen how Jesus Christ had been beaten and mutilated and the violence that had been done to his body, to his person. And they go into hiding, and you can't blame them. And then after the resurrection, in just three days' time, they're changed into men who are so bold. In fact, their boldness was the most outstanding characteristic. They're always talking about the boldness of the apostles. What changed them from hiding, terrified, fearful men in three days into bold proclaimers of the gospel of Christ that are willing to lay down their lives for it? The only thing that you can explain that with is that they had seen the risen Christ. They had met him They had heard him talk. They had eaten with him even. And over those brief period of days, they were so changed that they would give everything they were for him. Had they been involved in any kind of a plot to to defraud or to cover up the truth, they they wouldn't have been that bold. But they had seen the living Christ, the risen Christ. 
And do you know what they did? They went throughout the world witnessing. They could not be stopped. And within 300 years or less, the majority of people in the Roman Empire identified themselves as Christian. How do you explain that? You can't. It's supernatural, and its foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, isn't that a challenge to us today? Increasingly, we live in a hostile culture. Increasingly, we live in a time when Christianity is, I'm going to use the term under the gun, but I, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. In Nashville, Tennessee, six people were shot and killed in a Christian school in the building zoned by church, just like we have here. And the reason for it was hatred of Christianity at bottom line. That Christians teach something contrary to what the world teaches, and therefore there was a hatred and a resentment, and, and, they were, and, and six people died. Almost borderline martyrs, you would say, for the faith. And I could multiply the illustrations across the country today and across the world. Christians are hated. Christians are being, being refused admission to schools. Christians are losing their employment. Christians are beginning to pay a price again for the faith, much like was occurring right here. You know the thing that kept these people on point and they would not back off? They had met the risen Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ kept them faithful to the gospel. That speaks to my heart, and I trust it speaks to your heart. I can't witness too much for him. I can't be too bold in my proclamation of the Christian faith. I must stand where he stands, no matter what the issue may be, because he is the living Savior. He is observing my life and your life. One day soon, I will stand before him. I will give an account for every word, every thought, every act and deed in my life. On that day, I want to hear him say, Bill, well done, good and faithful servant. You stood for me. Welcome home. Our heads are bowed.